ontological oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Perhaps one of the most notable decades of American history was the 1950s. Fresh off of a victory in World War II with a red-hot economy, the proliferation of a plethora of material goods flooded homes, transforming the landscape of what was then modernity. It was here, amongst newly minted chrome cars, household appliances, fast food, and space rockets, that the American dream was born. It is interesting to look back on concept art from that period and see how forward-thinking individuals imagined we'd live today. Needless to say, there are no flying cars or household robots, yet. But it raises a fascinating question. Does our current state affect how we conceptualize the future? Today, we're discussing futurism. Nice intro. You you went to a place I didn't quite expect, and that's that's good. <laughs> so, what is futurism? Well, I have to make a, a distinction, uh, just because I'm the unrepentant academic. There is a, a category of folks who the very first thing when they hear futurism will think back to 1909, 1910, when, when uh, the futurism, art futurism as a movement was was started. And it was it was odd. A fellow named Marinetti uh, wrote the manifesto, basically. And it was about essentially starting over again, but in a rather chaotic and uh, violent supporting way, really. <laughs> it was yeah. not, not quite what one would. Um, so, you know, what they say the goal is to discard the past. Well, whenever you're just saying discard something, Oh, okay. If you've got good reasons to discard it, that's fine. But you can discard it uh, decently, or <laughs> just and and so he ended up. Uh, they, they were. Uh, it was just a, a violent kind of approach, um, and that didn't last long in itself. But the idea underneath it does underlie what we're talking about today. Uh, that. Uh, if being identifies with reality and becoming with appearance, then what you make and what you aim toward becomes the reality. Hmm. And I think that and that emerges that emerges off of it. So, yeah, yeah. So that was one of the questions I was going to ask. Um, was you know if how that movement or if that movement contributes to the broader conceptions of um, the, the ideations of the future. I, I think it does. I mean, one of the things, well, of many things, the, the machines are beautiful. Okay, this was the futurist, the, the original futurist manifesto, about speed and power, and thus automobiles, <laughs> <laughs> even though we're talking back to the Model T, but, you know, when top speed was, what, 25 or 30 miles an hour. Yeah. And, and, and because, because that kind of thing meant uh, seeing the world differently, seeing it fast, seeing it through the lens of the machines that you're building around you and letting the machines take you into visions that you otherwise wouldn't have. So it's not 21st century futurism, but it still has those, those, those keys in it and it strikes me i've been thinking about this that you know this worship of cars look where it's gotten us <laughs> yeah so this vision of 
fast, faster, fastest, and 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 the culture did pursue it. Uh, there were many who eschewed the idea of futurism, especially because of the the violence. But the violence that the car has done to the planet, and we're all complicit in that. Well, almost all of us. Uh, I'm sure there's some few that are are not in the Himalayas, but the, you know, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, you're already anticipating some of where we'll where we'll go in the show, which is which is great. You always have a way of doing that. But yeah, so futurism as an aesthetic movement, you know, originated in Italy. Uh, it, it it had a Russian off offshoot, but for the most part, it, it didn't last very long. But oh, you don't want um, to destroy libraries and museums. I mean, why would you destroy museums? Destroy libraries? Destroy embodied knowledge? Yeah, yeah, and and you know, like you said, anytime that the the idea of discarding something is brought into the 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 rhetoric it's usually um usually detrimental and i think that maybe perhaps that's the lasting legacy of of that movement is in our conceptions of how we think about futurism now mm-hmm. um i think that we should and our modern situation that might be something that we want to think about this idea of um discarding things completely and where it gets us and what the impact of it is. Yeah. And, and, and that's the, the, the current types of futurism for the most part, I think for the most part are, are D linked, unlinked or just separate. It just happens to be the same word. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'd agree. So do you think futuristic ideas have always existed or can they only emerge under specific conditions? I think they've, I would assert that they've that they've always existed. Now, the, there are conditions that arise that maybe focus people or a culture to think ahead. If, if if you, for instance, if you find an impending disaster headed your way, then some in your culture are going to be thinking about what can we do to perhaps avert this or mitigate it, or survive through it. And I think there are levels depending on what it does or does not happen when you come up to that. And that that's very Aristotelian. Uh, uh, Aristotle was uh, took on the idea of the fatalist claim that you can't do anything about the future. And and he says that, that claims we make about what will or will not happen in the future are not necessarily true or false today. Uh, and and I take this to heart because sometimes I will, uh, rather unthinkingly, at my worst moments, say, "Well, we might as well just stop. It's it's here. It is." But it was a climate crisis. But then I think back to my Aristotle, <laughs> who, who says, "Just because you say this is going to happen, that doesn't make it a fact." Mm. You know, and 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 it's right, and there's a lot of hope in it. So. Um, it's true. He says it's true now, now that specific future events are likely or unlikely to happen. Of course, this is a translation because there are many sorts of events that we can measure and see and have the data about and, and so on. Uh, but but that doesn't mean that there's a handbook saying if this happens, this next must necessarily happen. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a good example of that in, you know, our current time is um, – the atmospheric rivers in California, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just a few weeks ago, right? We were talking about how drought in California and where are all these 
you know, people in Phoenix and all these cities, you know, they're not going to have any water in the next couple decades. Where are they going to go? Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, a few monsoon like rains come in and the reservoirs fill up and well, you bought yourself a little bit of time. Now, does it mitigate, um, you know, the, the climate disaster? No, and certainly not in, in other regions of the world. But in that specific situation, something that um, we're sort of looking at is, you know, perhaps a foregone conclusion. These, these people are going to run out of water. Right. Suddenly got turned on its head in, in just a, the snap of a finger. You know, right? it, it was a reprieve. And the futurist says, well, yeah, but what happens next and what should we be doing? And, and, mm-hmm. they, and, and then the person is not a futurist oriented person. Says, well, yay, we have wrestle. We don't worry about that anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's this idea of um, futurism, thinking into the future. Uh, you look at Maslow's hierarchy, right? And you think, okay, well, I think you do have to have needs for, for safety and some of the physiological things in place before, before you can get to thinking about that. You know, I think probably in pre, pre-civilization, um, you know, if you were, if you all of your existence was consumed with trying to find shelter and trying to find food and that sort of thing. You probably didn't think too much about the future, but perhaps it always existed in the form of parenting, right? You know, if you had children, probably since the beginning of time, you had a drive to make sure that past your lifetime, there was something there that was going to help them survive. So maybe in, in that primitive way, it always existed. But I think that you you almost had to get into um, some kind of civilized time. You had to be settled a little bit in order to think about, oh, well, what's going to happen beyond my lifetime or in, you know, decades down the road or whatever. And part of me wonders how that shifted, how that's shifted since the Industrial Revolution or maybe since the Enlightenment. Because before that time, changes were on a much larger time scale, right? Mm. If you think about modern times, you know, we talk about topics like AI, topics like robotics, these sorts of things, um, longevity, that sort of stuff, right? Where you go, well, within my lifetime, we might see very significant changes to the future. Yeah. Um, But before the Industrial Revolution or before the Enlightenment, I think that major changes were happening on a longer time scale. So I'm curious what those people in the Middle Ages or in classical times, what their conception of the future um, would have looked like. It's a really fine question. And I'm, I can draw on, if you think about uh, Philosophers emerging from the medieval, because in the medieval, you're you're talking about a staticness uh, that's not uniform, but but because of the uh, not just influence but control, really, of the church in Western circumstances, <clears throat> that the, the future is not, as you say, at all the kinds of things that we're thinking about. The future is all right. You live till you don't, and then you either go to heaven or hell, mm. or or limbo. But it's it's universal. It is a vast kind of thing. This this tiny little life. Well, you're going to be here, and you're going to be gone. And and if you live adhering to the rules, well, then 
you know, you're going, you're going to have a modicum of existence. But, and it's not, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm laboring not to oversimplify, but really in medieval times, oversimply, I think that that's the through line. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to look at, um, you know, like what's considered like the first works of science fiction, right? Mm-hmm. Which from those times where you see guys and it's not really science fiction as we'd think about it, but it's just these, it's sort of like these creative ideas about, oh, well, what would happen if I went to the moon? Right. right. <laughs> what would right. happen, you know? And that kind of thing was going, well, I'm glad you brought up science fiction because science fiction for me still, uh, even though uh, Ted Sturgeon had a, Sturgeon's law was that 99% of everything is crap. <laughs> and that can apply just about everything. But, but still, uh, science fiction is the only literature. And really, in many ways, if you broaden it to, uh, to the artistic, and it is, I mean, not to broaden it, it is science fiction art. Um, it's the only thing that looks ahead and says, what if? And hmm. In a way that's not often it's trite and so on, but they're 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 splendid pieces of work. And the job of science fiction is not to predict. And this is where people fall short on the idea of sort of, oh well, they're trying to tell us the way things are going to be. No, they're saying if these circumstances happen, here's one possible uh, result. Uh, the, the cause and effect. It could be this way. And, and the word could is, is what's terribly important. And this is going back to what Aristotle was saying. So sure, da, da Vinci is picturing us flying with wings and creating marvelous machines, a futuristic uh, approach, just as an example we all know. All the sketchbooks and things that he, that he was uh, creating in his mind and, and sometimes trying to actually physically make real. Uh, I think that always exists in humanity. Somebody's somebody looks at the moon and says, "I wonder what it's like." Mm. Somebody looks at the stars and says, "What are those things?" Yeah, and 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 that's a, a kind of futurist tone in philosophy. Yeah. So this this connection between you know futurism and science fiction are not the same thing, um, and I think that maybe. A, Maybe a good question to ask to sort of delineate between the two is, so science fiction, I mean, science is in the name and um, technology is an important part of science. <clears throat> is technology an essential element of futurism? Not in equal ways. You, If we go back to Marinette, if we go back to the futurist statement just as an example, and machines are it. Okay. Well, there's a whole branch of the... Lots of science fiction that deals with machines and what machines are going to, uh, what the relationship is going to be. And that's because we have so surrounded ourselves with machines. So, but there, there are uh, pieces of science fiction that don't dwell on machines as much as what humans are doing in their society. Ursula Le Guin is, is an example of that, or, or Margaret Atwood. Uh, is an example of that. And there are more than a few philosophers currently who say that really it shouldn't be called science fiction. It should be called philosophical fiction. Hmm. And I kind of like that. Yeah. So it would be fi-fi instead of (laughs) (laughs) sci-fi. Yeah, I think that, um, I think it's an interesting question because 
I mean, especially if we think about futurism in those time frames that, that we were just mentioning, classical times or medieval times where um, technology, you know, primitive technology was there, but it wasn't playing a central role in people's lives. Makes you wonder, could could social progress suffice as a view as a futurism as a view of the future for for people in that time frame and could that exist today right if we thought okay well rather than extrapolating into the future about what technology is going to be like we'll extrapolate into the future and say maybe someday i'm not there won't be serfs right maybe someday everybody will be free maybe someday everybody will be treated the same that sort of thing yeah you know what other aspects go into futurism um that aren't just based on technology oh 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 well all right so let's just take one branch it's fascinating i've 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 been aware of it but only recently have i started doing any serious reading in it and that's because of of my uh, second born adult child and their partner um it's called afrofuturism and it's everything from dance to style, uh, fabrics, art, uh, music, literature, all about how does the future, how can the future look, how is the future already beginning to look from where we are, uh, from the, uh, with a, a locus in uh, African culture, ancient and modern. And so we see an example of that in well, in pop culture, for instance, with the Wakanda and the Black Panther movies, which didn't feel the same as some other Marvel films, as an example, but also uh, because it's looking at another society. It's looking at a society not as a utopia, uh, something that aims toward a utopia, but no utopia ever works entirely well. So there's uh, just as one example, Afrofuturism, and that goes every, everything from, from, as I said, everything you can imagine, food, uh, uh, look, dress, music, art, literature. Yeah, and I think in, in many ways, our current modern modernity is a bit of Afrofuturism. I'm thinking about, of course, music, right? Mm. There's, not, there's really not a single genre of music that isn't influenced by African music, yeah. you know, going back to, to blues, to jazz, to rock, to, to rap and hip hop. Yes. And yeah. there's not a single genre of music that isn't touched at its roots from African music. So our music today um, that we think of as, um, you know, by and large, not having um, racial roots, it's just music belongs to everybody, right? It's, it's what it is. Um, it does come from a source that it, it was in many ways um comes from one one racial culture and re- well and, and and a variety of cultures and societies that feel you know we talk about fusion music i mean if you i i had a fascinating for me fascinating discussion with a a, a young person uh, a couple months back who was breaking down for me of uh, music categories and subcategories and for the most part even though I love music, I have never heard of these categories. And they're mostly hyphenated concatenations of, it seems to me, identifying characteristics that are, are, are glued together like a train. Uh, and, and the same thing was in, in, in literature. Uh, 
uh, subcategories of literature. Okay, this is a really interesting way to hierarchically render or or find the provenance of the, the source of materials. But what you just said is important. Of course, it's important for us to locate the source because the source is what's going to influence. Hmm. You know, and 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 while music belongs to everybody, um, we all have access or want to have access to music. And and yes, when you play, who you are, still who you are matters in how you're interpreting and, and creating and making. But I think recognizing the source is desperately important to honoring and then reshaping whatever whatever the source happens to be in art, music, or, or the like. Yeah, and this this comes back to the aesthetic music, uh, the aesthetic movement of futurism, right? Because yeah. an important part of living in the modern phase is looking at the things that we have now and tracing back the roots of them and realizing that at some point in the past, what we have was futuristic, yes. right? Yeah. And so, whereas the futurism art movement didn't recognize that. They said, we're going to sever all connection to the past and we're going to just in, invent something new. That's really not the way that, that, that futurism works practically in societies. Really, the way it works is it's a, it's a constant progression um, built off the past. But um, what's interesting about it is that, that that severing of the past still happens. But rather than it being a conscious severing, it's more just a gradual thing. Mm-hmm. If something exists long enough and it progresses long enough, and it's this ship of Theseus thing, right? Oh, yeah, if yes. we replace all the boards on it, then the ship doesn't belong to the guy who it owned originally. Now it's everybody's ship because each everybody everybody different put a board on. But the layout, the plan was still made by somebody originally. That's, that's exactly it. That's why I, I, I hasten to try to identify with it. it Afrofuturism is, a, is located in, is anchored in black identity. And I don't have black identity. I can appreciate what I'm reading and learning about. I certainly, so many uh, science fiction writers of color, it doesn't mean you have to write a black science fiction story or or a brown science fiction story if you happen to be black or brown, but or white, same thing. You know, there was an there was a an indigenous uh, writer who people were saying. Oh, you wrote this novel. It has nothing to do with Native American culture. You you didn't put Indians in it. You can't do that. You're an Indian writer. Well, you know that. that, that well, the inevitable knee jerk response is always is is always this. And yes, the ship of Theseus, exactly as you say, somebody originally designed it. And so, if we just say, well, it belongs to all of us now, then essentially we've we've achieved yet another marker in cultural imperialism. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and capitalism. Right, we all own it now. You you can't call it this because oh yes you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it doesn't necessarily have to come from a malicious place, but it no, it certainly no. comes from a misguided place. I, I read a quote recently. I can't remember who it was from, but they were saying, you know, you can learn about other cultures, um, and you can attempt to empathize with their stories and with their situations. Mm-hmm. But we have to realize that empathy still at its core is just you imagining somebody else's perspective through your own. So it is still, empathy is still an emotion, still a process that is based in your experience. So as a result, 
you will never be able to understand what anybody else is going through. So regardless of how much you think you know or how much you think you can identify, you can't, you know, and that's an important part. It should make us better listeners. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We can listen and we can take it in and say, well, right. All right. So we've looked at technology and and technology, I think, you know, is an important part of science fiction, but not a necessary part of futurism. So that helps us sort of delineate those two concepts. Is exploration an essential element of futurism? Oh, my first response was, that's a lovely question. Yes. Yes. Um, And I'm going to build that off of what you said earlier about the the atmospheric rivers as an example, because I saw something else this morning in the papers that I think is is a prime for what we're talking about. Out of all of this vaccination acceleration because of the pandemic on a worldwide scale, the acceleration of research led, one might say invariably, into exploration of other vaccines while all of this was happening. And today, uh, there's been a statement released, or this weekend, by by Moderna, big farm, big pharmaceutical, uh, that uh, they have in development and expected to be fully deployable by the end of this decade, if we make it to the end of this decade, and of course somebody's going to make it to the end of the decade, uh, vaccines for many varieties of cancer and for heart disease. Hmm. No one would have thought about vaccinating against heart disease in, in a public circumstance five years ago. Now, some innovators were probably thinking about it for some time, but but as an idea, now it's out in public. Now that's going to cant us toward, and that's like the atmospheric river. It hadn't been the pandemic, and one doesn't want to say, "Wow, I'm sure glad we had the pandemic." No, I'm not. We're we're not. That 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 changed history too. That removed millions of lives from the planet, and therefore we are not the same people that we were. Uh, we can't. We we can go on and pretend all that we. Oh, we're, 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 things are just the way they always were. No, they're not, and that's what the exploration is. It requires an exploration to say how have we changed, and what comes next that we don't know, because suddenly, seemingly, there's this there's this contingency that arises because of research in something else, yeah, relatedly, which has. So we explore the idea what. What are the what are the what ifs of this? If hundreds of thousands or millions of people don't have to die of cancer, how will that change the cultures around the planet? Will people have equal access? Because so far in human history, people haven't had equal access to food, materials, medicine, or anything else. So if I were being a cynic, I'd say, well, no, everybody's not going to have access, but that would be the wrong thing. Aristotle would say, you don't know that. You don't know that. You can't tell that. So don't try to make it a reality because that's the way you think it's going to be or that you think it has to be. So I think the exploration 
it's certainly physical and technological and everything else, but I think primarily it's philosophical, it's intellectual, it's it's a what ifing on a big scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think exploration is a really interesting topic that we should do an episode on sometime. Yeah. But yeah, I think that I think that futurism is at its core exploration, um, and I think that on multiple levels, you know, I think that if you you know, you all the way back, you, you know, you see map makers from classical times and their ideas of what the world looked like or, um, you know, ex- explorers across the ocean or, or sci-fi explorers in yeah. the, out in space, right? <clears throat> there's, so there's that physical exploration. Um, but there's also the exploration like what you were just talking about of ideas, right? This, this um, sort of concept that, you know, we have problems now. And there's always going to be problems in the now. And part of futurism is thinking about how you're going to address those problems. How, what are we going to do about them? Because, you know, like, like you were saying at the beginning, we're getting that part of the discussion now. Um, you know, cars solve the, that problem of, of transportation, right? Of, of getting from one place to another, of yeah. personal freedom. But they created another problem, you know, the emissions issues, right? Um, vaccines for cancer and heart disease are going to solve one problem you know the basically the number one and number two leading causes of death but that increase in population um and in longevity is going to create other problems right Mm -hmm. so this this tinkering that we do when we're engaging with ideas when we're exploring um you know it's always a a two-edged sword and you know when you're exploring things uh you know, sometimes you you find a, a gold mine, and sometimes you stumble into a well, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, you do. And and again, the, the perhaps knee jerk response might be, "So why don't we just keep things exactly as they are?" But that's a falsehood. Mm. Things are never exactly <laughs> as they are because people are never exactly as they are, and so this this desperation to go back to something that was at its best ugly and certainly didn't exist to make everything better for people. This, this desperation to just keep things the way that I just want it to stay the same. No, you don't. And I can say this as a grandfather. Uh, when you have someone you've watched since their emergence into this world uh, and it's going to be a very soon all day. This is a very small, but the microcosm sometimes um, sheds light on the macrocosm. And you, and it's going to be in school all day. Hmm. That's going to be a, a life shift for me in my little life. Right? Um, it's going to be a life shift for my granddaughter. She's growing. And that's marvelous. And I celebrate that. And I would be some kind of tyrannical idiot to say, oh, I just want to keep it just the way it is forever. Oh, you want to lock somebody into the, that, that, that time in their life? You want to freeze them in that time in their life? And most of us, we thought about it, we say, no, I really don't do that. But it's been really nice. Of course it has. And we keep the memory. And then we have to go on because we can't stop developing until we're gone. <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, and I think that the, that is a very relatable thing for people. You know, I think everybody have um, loved ones, whether it's children or, you know, whoever that you do, you see them and you go, oh, they're so cute. They're so innocent. Like, 
you know, being an adult is terrible. I wish they could just, they could just be small. <laughs> right. But you're, you'd miss out on so much. Um, you know, and I think that what that sort of viewpoint fundamentally disregards is, um, you know, it, it has a, a discontinuous view of the human personality, right? Yes. You, you have this view that, well, when you're small, you're curious and innocent and fun and, and, and honest. And then as an adult, you're, you're the opposite of all those things. You're just this hardened, numb um, person. But that could be the case depending on your life course and on your choices. Um, but it's possible to make it through life and still be the same person in some ways, in important ways that you were when you were. To still have the joy of exploring. Right. You and I were talking about it before before the show. I was getting almost manically excited about a research project that I'm doing, right? And that is born from the curiosity and 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 the childish fun that is in me, but it's melded with the things that I've learned and experienced since that time. I couldn't I couldn't do a research topic, you know, at a doctoral level as six year old, right? Hmm. The ideas might be there that the futurism, right? That idea of of you know the the creativity and and the projection, but the skills, what's needed to to execute those things or even conceptualize those things, those come with time. You know, they they do. And this I, I I could see the excitement when you're describing it, and I was excited and am in in your in your enthusiasm with it. Just as I have been, as I was telling you, I've I've been. Um, doing some informal editing for some grad students. It's a marvelous opportunity. I, I, I offered, uh, they accepted, and, and it's given me a chance to keep teaching in a different way. Uh, but but the, the research that they're, that they're doing, this, this cutting edge, where does this particular profession, um, dance and movement therapy, Where's that going to, it's a relatively, you know, a, a couple generations old field. Where's it going to go next for the, with the, all the different uh, cohorts of people that, that these therapists will be working with. And they're, they're, they've designed studies and they're carrying them out in small, uh, small groups because they don't have all the resources and everything to, to, to do big yet. But I've been saying to them, I hope you will uh, try to publish this. Because you're the you're the folks that are on the edge of your practice, and and people who've practiced for decades in a field still have things to say and can offer, but it's more contextual, and and it is perhaps looking forward and reconsidering how it used to be, and how it has become. But there's still things that one could offer as as mitigation or as guide, uh, as Aristotle was talking about. I, I couldn't. I couldn't write a, a current journal article and say this is where education is going to go. Nor should I, because what's the point? I don't know where education is going to go. I wouldn't have anticipated Chad GBT less than a year ago. Yeah. Uh, and and we talked about that. So, but how do we approach education, and how do we how do we try to resist all of the the, the, the potential fascisms, and how do we how do we help somebody develop into a constantly, continuously developing person 
not that education ends when you get a piece of paper and all those kind of things. And so here are these folks researching, here's you researching, and here I get to, to hear about this and and read about it and say, wow, we don't know anything. It's back to that thing. We think we know how it's all going to end. We just want to go to the end of the book. And and, and people who try to press their tyrannies onto assuring that culture is going to be X, Y, or Z. Nonsense. <laughs> I go back to Princess Leia and Darth Vader and the quintessential scene where the more you squeeze, the, the more will slip between your fingers. We can't know that. We know terribly important things about how the planet is changing, as an example. But that doesn't mean we know exactly, moment to moment, how it's going to be. Mm. We, we know that there are superstorms. But how we adjust to that, whether we people just keep living in exactly the same place, keep building <laughs> right by the ocean, or we make some changes in where people ought to live and how we ought to use water and so on. We have that capacity. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I th the important thing is, you know, like we were just talking about, the exploration, right? Um, and yeah, my, my exploration is philosophical in nature, right? Because philosophy, as we've talked about in the past, philosophy is at the edge of, of science. It's at the exploration is is philosophical in in nature right mm -hmm. because science you know you have you have things to account for it right um but creating new science necessitates you to draw on philosophical concepts you have to explore mm -hmm. um and i'm finding that you know why the the topic that i chose to tackle was uh, you know has to do with dreaming right which is something that is notoriously hard to study um, and is still very much in the realm of um, philosophical speculation rather than scientific um, knowledge. Um, but coming up with novel ways of looking at it and then seeing what, you know, what as a side effect, you know, I, I just wanted to answer this philosophical question because, you know, obviously I'm intimately interested in the idea of ontology, the human experience, mm -hmm. right? But then as a practical offshoot, oh, well, this could actually yield benefits for the medical practice in terms of how we administer anesthesia and how we treat coma patients and these sorts of things, right? So all of a sudden, like, the, it's a byproduct, right? You're, you're exploring. You don't know what you're going to find. Maybe there will be negative effects, right, I, that I'm unaware of, right? So I have to be very careful in how I approach it. So exploration, I think, is, is a super important part of it. Um. Does futurism have a, this, this, a, a future. this is a fun question. This is a fun question. I, I worded it this way okay. in person. Yep. Does futurism have a blind spot for failures of past futurism? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh. Well, you just come up with a most interesting question. You always did. All right. If by blind spot, you mean we overlook it. Hmm. Well, I think there's always the possibility, yay, even in some cases, a probability that people will overlook things they really don't want to think about from the past. But I think it, we're already demonstrating that that's not necessarily, that has to be the case at all, because when we look at the futurist statements from 1909, just for in the art realm, which isn't, isn't our primary concern, but it's still where that term started. 
we could say, wow, and they were so right about cars. And, you know, without cars, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have the world that we live in. Oh, well, that's true. It's complicated. Uh, because we chose in our country not to go into full-blown mass transit systems, as did Europe, we have an abundance of cars and cars of course change <laughs> we don't drive model t's anymore except in movies and and so if we had a blind spot to all of it we'd say well you know a car is a car and they've had their uses and so it's fine but i don't think futurism does that yeah yeah i think that i think it's a bit of a mixed bag <laughs> as far as the question goes right because i think we've examined some of it where you could say um you know, yeah, okay, so we have we have cars, and that was part of a futuristic vision, um, and now we're recognizing that cars are exasperating the, the climate issues that we're having, right? So there, you know, some people may have a blind spot to that, but I think that the people who are primarily responsible for futurism, right, scientists and, and, and engineers and, and uh, philosophers and those sorts of people, by and large, they don't have a blind spot. They understand that that's an issue, right? Yeah. I think where the blind spot of futurism for past futurism <laughs> is in, um, it's usually in how we address those issues, right? So as issues pop up, I think there's always this, it comes back to that fundamental aspect of exploration right as you're exploring you don't know what you're going to find right and i think the humans are optimistic explorers right we we assume that the farther we go into the unknown the the better the thing is we're going to find and and that thing might solve our issues rather than looking at our issues head on and trying to and trying to address them in the as, in the moment which yeah. isn't to say that we can't use futurism to address the issues, but I don't think that futurism is generally thought of in that way. When we're when we're projecting into the future, when we're imagining a future, um, I don't think we're thinking about um, the mitigation of issues so much as the advancement of good things. Whatever we mean by advancement, yes, and this is what takes us right back to Aristotle again, which is which is marvelous because because he's saying essentially that the past does not have to doesn't lock the future into place and, and I think the, when you're talking about well what futurists thought in 1900 what future what people thought the world was going to be in whatever conceptions in, in times medieval of course there's maybe some overlap, but for the most part, that's just the limitations of context and life experience. And, and, and we are limited by those things, no matter how far ahead we want to look. We think about mortality. We, we think about, if we get to the place where we're not thinking about mortality anymore, that's going to create a great big change. And one might argue that it fundamentally alters humanity itself. Um, so that's a that's a broad or a far a futuristic view, but yeah, I th I think that of course there are limits. There are always limits. We always scaffold, but but we don't have to decry everything that a previous futurist said because they were 
they ran into a wall that we recognize as a ridiculous wall. Hmm. Um, but that's because we are. What are people going to say about what we thought? Yeah. You know, <laughs> that, is, that, that leads me to our, the last question, which is, what do you think the year 3000 is going to look like? <laughs> when I was a kid, there was a set of comic books I loved to read. It was called Magnus, Robot Fighter. <laughs> I think a Dell comic. And it says, this guy in this, this red... Shorts, 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 because robots, so many robots go bad. <clears throat> the year 3000 is in other comic books where the league, the legion of superheroes, uh, so young teens all over the galaxy. I haven't a clue what the year 3000 is going to, going to be like. I, I have no idea. Absolutely. I think cartography will have had to completely change because the continents will look different. The The bodies of water will look different. Um, atmospherics will look different. Um, I hope we're thinking better. <laughs> but but it doesn't it it doesn't interest me to try to project to very specific items. I, I love Star Trek. Last weekend I had a Star Trek weekend. Okay. And I realized then, when I went to this marvelous museum in Ticonderoga, I, I, I sent me to her. I really, and when I was like nine years old, and started seeing this old series that everybody really talks about now, but it was new then. It was new then, and 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 I was experiencing it, and it and it sank deeper into me than I realized that it would, and it's been part of my entire life. And it's not because, oh, we can carry phasers and have, you know. For, Communicators. Well, we have something like that, as Shatner's pointed out. It, in our little cell phones, they look a little bit like it. Flip phones used to look more like it. Uh, but it wasn't about that. That that the futurism was in what kind of attitude do we have toward moving outward? What kind of attitude do we have toward what the best is that humans can be, even though we don't always achieve it? It wasn't about the 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 costumes. Well, of course it was to a little person, but it, but it, but it's not. That's not what has lasted. It, mm -hmm. it is is about how do we approach the universe? Yeah, yeah. I think that I think when when trying to say something like that, when trying to be a futurist yourself, I think that the first thing you do is have to look inward, right? And I have to I have to assess my own attitudes, right? Am I Am I, how do, am I going to balance my optimism and pessimism about the human race in projecting forward? Because you could just as easily create a utopia as a dystopia, depending on your personal perspective, which is not generally um, going to be representative of reality. That's right? right. So I think you have to, you have to find some balance, some objective as, as far as you can balance about what the strengths of humanity are and what the struggles are that we're facing. But like you said, there's always going to be that chance factor, right? And a thousand years is a long time. You think about in the 1800s, there was a solar flare that was so strong, it took out all the telegraph wires. These are, We know these are common occurrences. So there's a very good chance sometime in the next thousand years, there's going to be a solar flare that's going to take out all of our satellites, all of our telephone and power lines. And that would have a devastating impact 
on civilization if there's no hardening of the power grid, if there's no yeah. um, attempt made to, to, to protect against it. But we don't know if that's going to happen. We don't right? know if that's going to happen. We, there's every possibility that a gamma burst passes through the Earth and we're instantly gone. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, it's, but you don't want to live that way and say, oh, am I alive now? Am I alive now? Am I alive now? That, 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 you know, Epicurus talked to us about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, a thousand years. I mean, th- the reason that I depend on science fiction to say what if, what if, in very interesting ways to think toward it is that, uh, just think about this. It's just one little factoid. We have created more information uh, in the past 10 years on the Internet than has existed all in all of human history information what we generate and what we what we put out there we're talking about zeta bytes now we're not even talking about gigabytes that's old right so how how can we possibly see a thousand years from now except extrapolating from current conditions of the planetary structure itself um, our no system is going to last that long. No institution is likely to last that long, at yeah, least in a recognizable way. Yeah, it's an interesting thing about what the world looked like a thousand years ago, right? Yeah. And how it looks now. You would have no way of knowing a thousand years ago what the world would look like now. But I think I think what might shock people from that time frame, you know, Charlemagne or whoever, you know, <laughs> about today or about the fu- the future, right? I don't think it might not necessarily be where we're at today so much as how rapidly we got to where we are today. Yeah. You know, I think that, it, you know, if he, you look at him and you look at the midpoint at the 1500s and he, he'd look, or look around and say, well, not a whole lot has changed. And then you split that again, you go to 1750 and you go, okay, well, things are changing, but the world is still recognizable. You know, and then you split that again. You're in 1875 and you go, things are a lot different now. And then you come to, to 20, you know, the 2020s and you go, this is unrecognizable. How did, how yeah. do we do this? The exponential rate of advancement. That's, I think that's what makes it hard for us right now to project into the future. My, if I'd make, and again, there's no point in making microscopic predictions. No, right? but I'm but interested mac- in your macro yeah, on, the, on a macroscopic level, right? If you take out, um, if you take the cosmic dice out of the equation, right, asteroids and, and, you know, solar flares and stuff, I think that, you know, I think there's, there's going to be some dystopian elements, right? There's, there's going to be some climate scenarios that are unavoidable. I think there's going to be a population collapse due to one, people choosing not to have children, which we are seeing happening, and also to a drop in fertility, both of which we're seeing happening. I just saw a study come out recently that said as many as one in six people yeah. is um is infertile at this point, right? Yeah. So I think there's going to be a population collapse. There's going to be some climate um, issues. But I think that there's also going to be a continued advancement of technology that is going to mitigate some of those issues. But I think that rather than technology being aimed at at personal freedom and and luxury sort of um, effects, I think that at some point there's going to have to be a seismic shift towards 
keeping the species in in a, a, a state of survival. You know, so I think there's going to be I think there'll be some regression. I think we'll look at the days of two day Amazon delivery and think, you know, what what were we doing? What was that all about? Yeah. You know, yeah. and we'll look at at individual transportation um, and, and some of these things. And we'll just say, you know, what a, a flagrant waste of resources, the same way you see pictures in the 1800s of loggers standing next to 40 foot in diameter redwoods and you think man what you know what did you do yeah, yeah exactly yeah. i think there's going to yeah. be an element of that but i i don't think i don't think it will be dystopian i i think that i think that it will be gradual um but i think that humanity will take a step back while taking a step forward i i, I share that first because there's an innate optimism the one has to just keep moving through the world, but but you know, you know the, the last thing I would say about it is is really the futurist futurism, and we don't often talk about it in this way. But again, to go back to um, um, indigenous peoples on, on this continent, uh, nations, tribes, groups. Um, those who said that every decision they make had to be considering seven generations downward. For the most part, Western culture has not made decisions based on that. And now we're finding ourselves in the positions where maybe we're going to be answerable, uh, criminally answerable to the next sets of generations because of what we've done. We think we've achieved all these wonderful things. And we, and we can very easily look at it and say, yeah, they're going to be saying to us, why did you do that? Just like we look at the... Yeah, and, and even beyond that, right? If we, you know, if we get vaccines for heart disease and cancer, if, if longevity science increases yeah. and fertility decreases, the perspective on that might shift from this amorphous future generations to yourself. You know, yeah. what is my world going to look like in a hundred years, right? That might become a viable question at some point. It might. Um, and I think that having that perspective would would have a, a visceral impact on how people consider things. Because it's, I think that it's easy to take the implicit position that, oh yeah, sure, the world will fall apart after I'm dead and who cares, right? right. Well, what happens if your death becomes much farther in the future but the disaster becomes much closer, right? <laughs> it changes the way that you, you think about it. It does. But yeah, it was an interesting conversation. I, I want to throw out um, one more, you know, I, I don't do it often enough. I might start tacking on at the end of the shows. If any of you guys have a topic or a question you want us to, to, to address, from nowhere to nothing podcast at gmail.com, email me your question and uh, we'll cover it for you. So until next time, keep pondering. 